this is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. Megan Milliken Biven is an energy policy researcher and founder of True Transition, an organization devoted to employing American oil and gas workers to address the United States' mounting abandoned oil and gas well crisis. She has also worked with organizers in Louisiana to establish offshore wind in Louisiana's federal waters and to improve public capacity to protect coastal communities from sea level rise. Previously, she worked as a public servant for the Department of Interior's Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. So Megan, thanks for talking to us on the Taos Land Trust podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. I just want to start off, we're, we're recording this on March 2nd, 2021, and we've just had seen this huge crisis in Texas caused by a shift in the polar vortex. I want to know what, what happened in Texas. What, what the heck just happened in Texas? So Texas, I think, is the endemic of a larger national trend to uh, delay or completely not maintain uh, any public infrastructure because it's a marginal cost. And it is something that doesn't make shareholders and owners immediate profits. And be it, you know, your water pipes that are over a century old or, you know, your electrical grid, you know, pick your poison dams. You know, all of our shared public commons suffer from a lack of maintenance and oversight and just generally people doing jobs to improve and maintain those things. That's how I view it. And is that really because, like you you indicated, because there's not a profit motive? I think that's a large part of it. I think, like, you know, deregulation, privatization, all of these, you know, trends for the last 40 years are about turning things that are, you know, for our mutual benefit into something that is only achieved or, you know, brokered if it's conditional on someone's profit. Like, just this mass rationing of public goods and services. It makes me think um, of what was it last summer, maybe, or last spring when there was um, some dams in Michigan, I believe it was, that nearly failed because um, because there was a, a a huge amount of rain in a short period of time and these dams had not been maintained. Exactly. And some of those were privately owned. And so they were already getting a profit from this this dam for the electricity that it generated. And they didn't want to take the money, they didn't want to spend the money to maintain them and protect the downstream communities that were in its path. And that's like, you know, you choose anything, you know, a lot of utilities that you have across the United States, you know, like I said, be it water or electricity or anything, like it's just, they don't want to spend the money because it's a cost and it's going to affect their, you know, their quarterly profits. And Texas, I think, is just a real extreme case of that um, because a lot of the electrical utilities are privatized and, you know, privately run. Um, And, you know, I come from Louisiana and most of Louisiana is owned and operated by Intergy, which is Louisiana's largest uh, private corporation or it's publicly um, traded. Uh, And, you know, I experienced blackouts on the regular. It was a very routine thing. And in fact, you know, we would have frequent um, boil water advisories because the generators and the electricity for the the water pumps and the water would fail. And we'd have like a neighborhood where, you know, we had a blackout and then we'd have no clean water for a two day period. And this is very common. I think something's happening right now in Jackson, um, Mississippi, where they've gone for two water, two weeks without fresh, clean water. So that means they can't flush their toilets, they can't bathe their children, they can't do their laundry. 
And, you know, I mean, pick a town, pick a state, you know, this kind of thing. And like, I live in Europe right now for the audience. I live in Vienna, Austria. We get that fresh Alpine water. And I, and I jokingly tell people that I'm just the world's worst diplomat because every story I tell about the United States is just about our failed infrastructure. But I mean, these kinds of stories are so routine and so common that it cannot be an accident. This is just, you know, a country that has forgotten that you need government, you need public employees, you need people doing jobs for you to have any sense of like a real civilization that's worth living in. Yeah. And like you said, Texas is maybe an extreme example in some ways, but this is this is taking place all across the country. Definitely. And we kind of feature, we, and we portray them typically as like these little quirks, like, oh my goodness, can you believe people are walking this amount of um, distance to access clean water? Oh, there was a blackout. There's websites that document the frequency of blackouts. Like this is not uncommon. These are things that Americans across the country are facing every single day, but the media doesn't show it as what it is. It's this, uh, mass abdication of the public good and the public service. And uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers, they every year, not every year, every few years issue a report card of public infrastructure, be it levees, you know, inland waterways, uh, dams, bridges, and not a single piece of infrastructure, you know, rates above a D. These are all, you know, suffer from delayed maintenance and are in risk of catastrophic catastrophic failure. So think about that next time you uh, drive over that historic bridge. Yeah, right, right. You know, I, I had mentioned to you before that I'd lived in Europe for several years. And, um, and I think that one of the, one of the things that a lot of Americans don't um, really uh, comprehend or understand is just how um, backwards we are when it comes to infrastructure and services, energy, internet, things like that. Um, I mean, you can go to the, the remote mountain villages in Eastern Europe right now and get better internet than you can in some neighborhoods and some towns uh, here in the United States. Definitely. And you can access those places with high-speed rail, you know, at a low cost. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think... And I don't think there, that that is a product of like anything like, oh, Americans are so backwards. I think that this has been an intentional political project of the last 40 years. And it's very you know fitting that I am sitting in Austria where this is like the origin story for those policies. I don't want to go too wonky for your audience. But I mean, you know, we always talk about the Chicago consensus, the American consensus. But, you know, those origins are here. You know, uh, Ludwig von Mises. Friedrich Hayek, all those guys, they left Europe and they you know, eventually arrived in the United States where they decided and, and you know, preached this gospel of there has to be more control in private firms' hands. We have to diminish the control of government by any means necessary. And you know, the last 40 years, that looting of the public commons has been the result. And that is why you know, people are boiling snow to be able to cook food. That's why children are dying in RVs because it's too cold and not insulated. That is why, you know, our country is the way it is. This is the, re this is the result. This is the logical conclusion of the neoliberal project. Well, you know, in Texas, we heard a lot of um, Republicans and libertarians, conservatives blaming the, the Green New Deal for what happened in Texas. Um, but the Green New Deal, as far as I know, is still just really kind of a theory. There's no real legislation behind it. No new laws have been passed. So um, 
give us a sense of what the Green New Deal is and what are some of its possibilities. Well, I mean, that is a classic uh, rhetorical strategy on their part. They just blame the opposing side for the thing that they are guilty of. That is just what they do. And, you know, they confuse everyone. Everyone's too busy, like, well, well, well. Um, and it's really clever on their part. Um, I mean, that, that is like a, that is just their standard playbook. But in terms of the new, the Green New Deal, you know, it is something that I always envision like this, this emerald city on the hill. Like this is something that we, this destination, but it's also kind of like, you know, like calling it the New Deal harkens to this previous moment in American history when we were able to achieve almost 100% employment, when we were able to put people to work doing things that were beneficial to society as a whole and not just something that like made a profit on someone's, you know, index fund. Um, for me, the Green New Deal is recognizing that we have all this deferred and delayed maintenance across the United States. You know, I talk a lot about, you know, orphan wells, abandoned wells, but, you know, as we've talked already, like dams, coastal communities, there's all of this opportunity. And the Green New Deal is not going to be just one plan. It's going to be, you know, an alphabet soup of plans and, and recognition that, you know, the last 40 years, like the people who have been in charge, be it moderate Democrats, blue dog Democrats, Democrats, be it, you know, your neocon um, conservative Republicans, they have failed. They do not deserve to rule. They do not deserve to make the decisions anymore. Their experiment is a failure. And the Green New Deal is recognition that new hands need to be in charge and we need to reinvest not only in our infrastructure, but in our people. You know, 500,000 people dying is unacceptable. And that is what this leadership, both uh, administrations so far have permitted. And the Green New Deal is not just like, you know, a transition to a new energy source. It's about, you know, re-examining what the economic and social contract should be for America, in my view, not endorsed by any other person. No, but I think you lay it out really well. It's it's a vision. It's a, it's a theory of practice, of social and governmental th- practice um, that is not exactly a series of, of, of laws in and of itself, but really a, it's, it's a vision that we can attach uh, laws and regulations and, and, um, and, and practices to. Certainly, it's a guidepost. A guidepost, right. Well, you know, when it, when it comes to New Mexico in particular, um, and you, you're looking across uh, the United States at... at um, um, energy production and transmission, particularly when it comes to oil and gas. You know, New Mexico's been dependent on um, oil and gas for decades and decades. Um, we get a large amount of our state budget from oil and gas. It's it's a significant employer in the state. Um, and, um, and yet, as we look for climate solutions and as economies change, um, why is... New Mexico's dependence on oil and gas so problematic. Uh, it's the ticking time bomb. And Jim, I want to stop real quick and note that you are accepting a premise from the other side. You are saying that it is a good, it is, you know, it is a significant um, source of revenue for the state today, right? You're only looking at one side of the ledger. You're not looking at the future liabilities. So you're repeating the premise of the industry. And then you're also saying that it's a significant employer. Well, what is that percentage-wise? I think I saw something like maybe less than 2% of the entire workforce is in the industry. Um, 
So let's not do that. Well, because I guess that's where I wanted to lead the conversation was, um, you know, this is, this is where we're at, but it's really a problem. Yeah, don't repeat the industry's talking points. Challenge them on their premise. Um, the reason why New Mexico is a pivotal, uh, you know, place is because of the, the carbon that has not been taken out of the ground. I don't have the figure in front of me, but, you know, the potential reserves in New Mexico would shift the entire global balance for a real, in a real way, New Mexico is kind of the battleground for the future. And, you know, if we don't come up with real solutions for the state and its people to, you know, decouple its, you know, self from the industry, then the entire world is screwed. You know, you're the canary in the coal mine, but you're also like the coal mine, um, quite literally. Um, and I think there are real opportunities for the people of New Mexico, because like I said, you know, you say now, I think it's something like 40% of revenues come from oil and gas for New Mexico. I don't have the number right in front of me. I could pull it up. Um, but like, look at Louisiana kind of is your ghost of Christmas future. You know, that was true of my home state decades ago. But today, you know, after a pretty uh, concerted, you know, a few decades of uh, tax lawyers and, you know, occupying the state legislature completely, only something like 3% of the revenues come from industry, even though, you know, the entire state is pockmarked with oil and gas wells, you know, uh, thousands of miles of pipelines. The coast is literally sinking into the sea because of that. So that's the future that awaits you, you know, consider the revenues that New Mexico is getting from the industry as a short term loan on long term debt. That is how I would frame it. And the long-term debt also includes, you know, catastrophic climate change if we continue to unlock the carbon that is underneath New Mexico right now. Hi, this is Christy Nortez, Executive Director of the Taos Land Trust. For 30 years, we've been keeping working lands in working hands. To do that, we need your help. We need your cash. Please donate at tauslandtrust.org slash donate. Thank you. We're talking to Megan Milliken-Biven. She's an energy policy researcher and founder of True Transition, which is an organization devoted to employing American oil and gas workers to address our country's mounting abandoned oil and gas well crisis. Um, so Megan, yeah, that's, that's exactly the point here is, is, is that New Mexico so dependent on oil and gas for a number of reasons or sees itself as so dependent, but it really comes with a huge cost. And that's why I'd like, like to dive in now. Let's, let's kind of suss out some of those costs. Certainly. And, you know, that's kind of the nature of the industry. I think both intentionally and unintentionally, it, it crowds out other industries, right? Because, you know, who wants to set up, a, you know, some kind of ecotourism lodge next to a field of oil and gas wells? You know, they crowd out other industries unintentionally in that manner, but they also intentionally because they want to make states feel like they are dependent, that they have no future without those industries or without that industry being there. But as you probably know, and your audience knows, there are plenty of opportunities for New Mexicans. It just requires political bravery and a new kind of leadership. And may I say, uh, you know, industrial policy that is a lot that, you know, is the state's saying like, these are the industries we're going to support because it, it already is engaging in industrial policy. It is already, you know, saying we are going to subsidize the industry, the oil and gas industry in these ways. And you can always shift those gears. You could do something else. Right, right. And, you know, we, we can definitely, we have definitely have time to get wonky here um, a bit. Um, so, so just taking um, like Farmington, 
Um, Farmington, New Mexico, for example, and anybody who's outside of New Mexico, this is a city of about, you know, 45, 50,000 northwestern corner of the state. They're heavily reliant on oil and gas for nearly 100 years. Um, it, so much so that at one point, it's, it's one of the only places on the planet where a nuclear device was, um, was exploded underground with the intention to free up natural gas from the rock. I mean, it's, it's you know, I think that, that really is an example of, of, of that community. But over the last, what, five to 10 years, the oil and gas industry up there has started to fall apart and there's jobs, dollars. What, what, are, what are we looking at? What's happening? Okay. So I actually looked at this uh, yesterday and I sent you this stuff. Um, I was kind of looking at production data for New Mexico and it is really astonishing when you think about it. Uh, sorry. So between 2012 and 2019, there was a 285% increase in crude oil production in New Mexico alone. So that's from 85 million, um, you know, barrels of oil to 329 barrels of oil. But did that equate to jobs? Not really. I don't have the New Mexico numbers, unfortunately, but I can tell you, um, you know, nationally, that was part of a much larger trend. Overall, the United States increased its crude oil production. It doubled between 2012 and 2019. And why is that? It's because of the overturn of the crude oil export ban. Prior to that, the United States was barred from exporting crude oil. And then um, in 2000, what, gosh, forget, 13, 14, um, they, you know, the Obama-Biden administration overturned that ban and it greenlit all this capital for shale. But then, of course, what happens, you know, it floods the market and there's an oversupply. So the commodity price crashes. So how are you going to maintain profit margins? You have all this oil with nowhere to go. You're going to cut jobs. You're going to cut costs any way you can. And in the United States, that has meant a 20% decrease in oil and gas jobs in that you know, same time period. So you have this idea. They keep on saying this right now because of the suspension on federal leases. Like, oh, this is going to cost jobs. This is going to cost jobs. If you decrease production, that's going to cost jobs. But in reality, they have doubled production in the United States. And, you know, uh, oil and gas jobs plummeted. And, you know, where I'm from, Louisiana, you know, there was record production in the Gulf of Mexico. And 67% of the jobs were lost in that same time period. So... Yeah, sorry. Where was I going with this? Um, so that's where we are. And I, you know, I, one thing I didn't mention also, and there's some really good reporting on this. You know, not only do you cut jobs, but you make the conditions really unsafe. And there's some wonderful reporting that showed that between 2008 and 2007, 1,566 oil and gas workers died from industries. Excuse me, injuries in the industry. That is the same number of U.S. troops killed in Afghanistan during the same time period. And if you speak to anyone in the industry, you know that, like, you know, this is only going to increase. They're going to shift everyone to 1099 um, contracts. They're going to shift people to, uh, you know, shittier schedules. And they're going to automate and digitize and contract out to reduce wages. So these are the trends for the industry. You know, this is what's happening. You know, they want to keep on producing. They figured out how to do it with less people. And they're going to keep on doing that. So that is one thing to understand and appreciate. You know, even communities that are, you know, ideologically and, you know, really tethered to oil and gas in terms of their identity. You know, I come from Louisiana, certainly understand that, um, that like, you know, the maritime industry offshore is just part of who people are. And really, I think it's about reframing that, like that industry is still like that job and that work is still who you are. 
but the industry has no allegiance. It does not care. You know, just because Farmington has this like historical legacy and this contribution that has made oil and gas what it is, the industry doesn't care. You know, these are transnational corporations that consider themselves kind of above, you know, sovereign nations. They do not consider themselves American or, you know, whatever, or Dutch or British. They, you know, their only obligation is fiduciary duty and to their shareholders. And so for Farmington to, and for all New Mexican communities to ponder their future, I think it's important to look really honestly at what the industry itself looks at, at its, as its future. And how do they see their future? The industry, I mean, they are going to try to produce as much legal oil as they can before any kind of climate um, legislation or like political movement. And they're going to try to increase marginal uh, profit. I mean, excuse me, they're trying to decrease marginal costs to any extent possible. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I don't understand here a little bit is like we had this, you know, at the start of the pandemic a year ago, oil prices crashed. Um, thousands of jobs were were thousands of more jobs were lost uh, or at least put on hiatus or or whatever and um and at the same time we know that renewable energy sources are becoming more and more uh affordable um they're expanding everywhere so so what I guess I'm still trying to like think what is the motivation or what what is the thinking within these oil and gas companies moving forward with given these conditions? Well, okay, so you talked about like the crash. So, you know, February last year at this time, you know, that is the start of the Saudi-Russian price war, which coincidentally enough is here in Vienna, OPEC. Um, and it was because of American shale. Like I said, there was an oversupply. And the, the debate between the two countries was whether they were going to cut production to increase prices. And they didn't. And that led to the commodity crash, crash that you were talking about. And 118,000 American jobs later, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic was a, a uh, convenient media narrative uh, scapegoat. Um, so that's what happened last year. Um, the oil and gas industry is going to, you know, try and say, like, we can continue, we can be net zero, we can continue producing, um, but we're going to capture that carbon, we're going to uh, inject it into, we're going to we're like, we're going to make more concrete for air, for us to inject it into the earth. And but what they're really going to do is they're going to inject that carbon to frack wells and produce more, they just want to keep the game going as long as they can. I mean, that's like, you know, they're in the business of oil and gas, so they want to stay in it as long as possible. You know, some companies have diversified, you know, the classic case being Danish oil, natural gas, Dong Energy, which is now the leading offshore wind provider. Um, that is certainly a pivot that companies can take, and I think there's greater pressure to do that. But if you look at, like, states like Louisiana and Texas, and you look at some of the, like, you know, the think tanks that oil and gas industry has purchased, you know, the talk of net zero, the talk of, you know, carbon capture, you know, you certainly saw Bill Gates talking about that. You know, that is what they're signaling to be their uh, their strategy going forward. And I don't know if you saw today the American Petroleum Institute, which is the, the main lobbying arm of the industry, has hinted that they would support a carbon tax, which, of course, would be a downstream demand-based tax where the incidence is on you, the consumer, 
And so what will that do? That'll raise the cost of all your products. It'll be very clumsy to administer and it'll kind of piss you off. Um, and then it'll make you a little bit resentful towards climate policy. So that's, I see their strategy. And also, you know, they're starting to push in areas around the world where there hasn't been a lot of oil and gas production. So we call these frontier areas. And so I see their long-term game to um, pit, you know, developed uh, nations against developing nations that want to, you know, make money and pay off their their debt towards these international uh, bodies. So I see that as a move going forward too. I hope that uh, there's a lot of ground I covered just now. So please let me know if you have any questions. Yeah, that's okay. Well, one of my questions is, is you know, the price. Um, the price of oil and gas, has, particularly oil, has fluctuated so much. These guys obviously think that there's still a lot of money to be made, but in order to make that, I'm, I'm asking this as a question, in order to make that, they're, they're shedding jobs um, and shedding responsibility to water, environment, air, uh, in order to, to make up that cost? Is that, is that accurate? Definitely. And they're also, you know, gaming the political system. That's why, you know, cities that want to ban natural gas hookups and, you know, switch to electric have uh, encountered swift opposition. Um, you know, it's as it is now, like you don't have a choice what you plug your computer into, you know, is it coal? Is it natural gas? Is it wind? It's just, you know, you're, you have, it's not like a, a you don't have a, an addiction to oil. You just have a a need for energy. You have a need for transportation. And as it is in most places, the industry has a lot of political power to determine what that is. And so that is where, like, you know, they exert their power and ensure that there is a guaranteed marketplace for their products. So it's not just about reducing marginal costs. It's about, you know, guaranteeing a market for their goods. And so, you know, that is like a lot of where the Green New Deal conversation is taking place. Like we can change what we plug everything into. You know, we don't need to build new natural gas plants when we have abundant offshore wind. You know, we don't need to drill new wells in New Mexico when we have such amazing solar potential and we could, you know, manufacture the panels in New Mexico. We don't need to drill new wells. We need to cap and plug and monitor existing wells. You're reading my mind because my next my next question was along the lines of, you know, when when oil and gas leaves, you know, what kind of mess do they leave behind? And I'll just tell you my personal experiences, you know, during the 90s I was an archaeologist for the Bureau of Land Management and well, and the majority of of the contracts that I was working on was you know, work doing clearance for oil and gas development either in southeastern New Mexico, the Farmington area, some sometimes other states. Um but even then, even in the 90s, you could see this mess that was left behind by oil and gas when a well dried up or when they were done with an area. And so, um, you know, it, it would be great if you'd go into a little bit of detail on, on what they leave behind when they go away. <clears throat> All right. Sorry, I'm going to go on a rant, y'all. Um, it's going to happen. So an oil and gas well, you drill a hole into the earth and when you're done taking hydrocarbons out of the earth you plug and the word is abandon it and typically that means you inject cement into the production casing the straw that you have inserted inserted into the earth but um, a well is not just the straw it's a bunch of different parts the christmas tree there's all these things that could happen um and 
leaks can happen even if you plug. You know, it's an engineered product with an engineered life. And what kind of form can a leak take? It could be natural gas seeping into a water aquifer. It could be methane, you know, escaping from the top of the Christmas tree and some like, you know, old gasket and, you know, emitting however many tons of uh, greenhouse gas. It could be all the things. It could be naturally occurring radioactive materials that are going into the soil, into your water and, you know, causing pediatric cancer. There's a lot of things. It could be just junk on top. It could be the pipeline that is attached to it. You know, in Louisiana, I always use Louisiana as my de facto example. You know, the industry has cut through the wetlands and marshes of Louisiana. You know, it looks like just the worst. I was, said this on Twitter the other day, like the worst office cake, just like slices. Um, and as a result, the the state, you know, all this saltwater intrusion has completely crumbled and destroyed the marshes. And, you know, in 50 years, Louisiana, I mean, excuse me, New Orleans is going to be waterfront property. Um, so the kind of mess that the industry leaves behind is just legion. And the number I always use is, from the Department of Energy Office of Fossil Fuel Research, something like that, it's a laboratory. And they estimate that since you know, the 1850s, there has been 10 million wells that have been drilled across the United States. And that could be you know, an old well that it had, um, it was plugged with wood and it's just in the middle of a field. You know, it could be a well that was you know, left in Los Angeles in the city center. It could be an old field that was lost to the records and now there's a housing community built atop it with a natural gas pocket slowly building up, waiting to explode, which does happen. So it's, you know, it's all kinds of things that the industry leaves behind. And, you know, like I was saying before, you know, at a certain, like in terms of public infrastructure, you know, at a certain point, these aren't isolated incidents. This is an intentional practice. This is an industry practice to, you know, force on its debts, both environmental and financial onto, you know, the public at large. So when an oil, so when the oil and gas industry leaves an area, they've got, they've got this, they've got the well that they've actually drilled. They've got the pipelines, they've got power lines, they've got roads, um, potential water contamination, air contamination. So they walk away from this mess. Like they say, like you said, they abandon it. And, and we we can definitely get wonky here because we've got intelligent listeners out there. Um, doesn't the industry have to put down money ahead of time for cleanup? All righty, let's get into this, guys. So when you, okay, so we say abandon. Abandon actually, if you read it through the literature, it actually could mean that it is plugged. It is it is legally it has been taken care of. You know, but that but my point was that even if it's a legally plugged well, it can still emit because engineered products have engineered lives. But to your question about financial bonding is what it's called. Think of it as an insurance policy, right? Um, that bonding is supposed to cover it's it's supposed to cover for the government. You know, if the oil if the uh, excuse me the company goes out of business and they're unable to pay for the decommissioning and plugging and abandonment of their well then that policy is supposed to, that that, uh, surety or that bonding is for the government's benefit to pay for the plugging and abandonment. Well, one, um, most bonding is insufficient. Uh, Most states, because guys, I just want to level with you, you know, there's a lot of oil and gas leasing programs. I think 20 states, 27 states have oil and gas leasing programs. You know, there's tribal leasing programs, there's federal leasing programs, both offshore and onshore. So there's you know, there's a whole universe of requirements and bonding requirements across that. So that is why this has piled up. It's such a, 
you know, a real cluster F of a problem. Um, but they're supposed to have this, this, this bonding instrument. And so most states have what are called blanket bonds. And they, you know, it's like company A, you know, Chevron or whomever has a bond that covers, you know, hundreds of wells across the state. So that's, of course, insufficient. But a lot of the bonding is um, too little to cover the actual cost of bonding. Since y'all are wonky, smart kids, I highly encourage you to go out and Google Carbon, carbon Tracker. They have uh, some good reports, Billion Dollar Orphans, which kind of go into the difference between their estimated actual cost to decommission, plug, and abandon these wells, especially fracked wells, and the level of bonding most states require. So there's a huge difference. You know, So the states have what are called unmet decommissioning liability facing them. And so that's what I was saying earlier. Like You're only looking at one side of the ledger. You're looking at the revenues, the rents, but you're ignoring the future costs to take care and clean up this mess. And so, as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, I used to work for the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, and that is actually how I came to this issue. There, you know, BOEM actually has fairly robust bonding requirements compared to other federal agencies, which is shocking because it still wasn't enough. And there were several of these what are called sole liability properties. So, so they were companies that had a lease. And they did not have enough bonding, and then they went under, and they were the only one to on the hook. Because in the Gulf of Mexico, actually, we have what are called jointly and severally liable um, uh, regulations, where if you know Chevron was the first company or Exxon was the first company to own a lease, and then it sold to some smaller firm, and then that firm sold to some smaller firm, and both those firms went out of business, the government still could pursue the original owner, it could pursue the big boys. And so they are jointly and severally liable. They were always on the hook. But there were several companies that, for whatever reason, had you know, been waived of that bonding requirement. And so there was billions in on that decommissioning liability. And so I was charged with writing a memo on what to do and how to deal with that. And it became very clear to me really quickly that there weren't a lot of in-house options available to us and that this was something that had to be handled on a legislative level and that we needed to confront this on a national basis because this was clearly a case where industry had kind of gamed the rules and gamed the uh, the regulators to their benefit. Um, but yeah, and so I also wanted to make the point too that like, you know, a lot of uh, environmental groups and advocacy groups have been framing bonding as the silver bullet. Like we need to just increase bonding and things are going to be okay. But, you know, what happens when like to an insurance company when you have like 10 hurricanes in a season, they're eventually the insurance company is going to fold. So to put all your eggs in the bonding basket, I think is ignoring the potential risk of failure to that industry. You know, at some point, and especially now as this has become a more immediate and, uh, you know, frequent conversation, the bonding industry as a whole may exit insuring oil and gas companies. And so that is something I think for both, you know, the wider public and regulators, to really consider. I just want to be very clear about what you're saying here. So this is this is a statement and a question here. So the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, found that in New Mexico and the Bureau of Land Management, um, which, which oversees a lot of oil and gas leasing right here in New Mexico, um, especially in the southeast and the northwestern part of the state, so that they hold about $2,000 in bonds, on average, for um, for each of these wells that are on federal land. So you you a company comes in, drills a well, and they're bonded for two thousand dollars for cleanup. But 
if I'm understanding this right, the cost to plug and reclaim each well and clean up ranges anywhere from $20,000 to $150,000, maybe even $300,000, depending on the, 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 the location and the geology. And so... So to come back to where, you know, where we were earlier, New Mexico's looking at oil and gas. Here's my question. New Mexico's looking at oil and gas as um, a huge part of our budget. It's, a bit, it's hugely beneficial to the state. And yet, like you said, that's only one side of the ledger because then there's this huge cleanup cost. I mean, if, if, if it costs $100,000 to clean up a well, but you only have 2000 who pays for the rest of that? We all do. I mean, and that's the thing. You're already paying for it, right? You know, these are risks. To, and that's only assuming, like, the cost. And this is, like, something that I think makes me a little different than the other orphan well and abandoned well folks talking about this, is that like, you're only talking about the plugging and abandonment. You're not talking about the future risk and the monitoring that might be required. Like, you know, is that well near a, a water aquifer? Do you need to send people routinely to take measurements to ensure that it is not posing a risk to those resources to ensure that, you know, New Mexico is staying within its carbon budget under any new future, uh, you know, treaty agreement, uh, excuse me, uh, treaty agreements. Um, so, yeah, the cost differential that we're talking about is just the, the physical, you know, plugging and abandonment it doesn't necessarily even include site remediation where you want to restore the habitat to another productive use um, that is beneficial to the local wildlife or maybe for some other uh, commercial purpose or, you know, residential purpose. So I doubt that we don't want that. So yeah, you are paying for it both now in terms of reduced health, re the, you know, the risk it poses to the resources that are there. Um, you know, the opportunity cost of using that area for something else, you know, for the economy being diversified. Um, so those are the costs that you're paying right now. Um, and then the future costs, like these liabilities are there. They're not going to magically disappear. These wells will pose a risk and they will have a financial and environmental cost, you know, in perpetuity. And for us to only inflate one side of the ledger and say these are you know, benefits today you know, that's a political choice. And that's a, you know, a real a short sighted one at that. Yeah, I just want to be really clear about what you're saying, because it's, it's, um, it's counter to the way it's counter to the common narrative. Um, but it's also kind of shocking. I mean, really, the oil and gas industry is leaving New Mexico further impoverished, far into the future. Once it's gone, New Mexico taxpayers are still going to have to pay these costs that you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think the best way to think of it is think of like a, a viceroy of an imperialist project. You know, like you may live in a nice place temporarily while they loot and plunder your area, but these are like petro-imperialists. They don't, they don't plan on staying in the long term. They want to get what they can while they can and leave you with the mess. That's their project. And you can look anywhere across the world. Look at Louisiana, look at Texas, look at Nigeria, look at anywhere where these companies operate. And that is their project. You know, they do not really care, like Papua New Guinea, any of these places. And, you know, it's, I think it's painful and difficult for Americans to kind of confront that, like, they are being, um, you know, scammed in this way, that they are being taken advantage so explicitly. But that is indeed what is happening. 
And, you know, their political servants are just, you know, craven, greedy uh, lunatics who don't see like the, the or they refuse to acknowledge or I don't know, maybe they do see it. Um, the kind of pain, future pain that they're inflicting upon their constituents. And so one of our previous guests, Jonathan Thompson, he's a journalist um, in, from Durango. Um, and he's not the only one by any means, but, you know, he, he recently penned a, a column calling for the economic, de- calling for economic development around the restoration of this mess that oil and gas leaves behind. Um, I want to dive into this next because, you know, again, one of the points of our podcast this year is climate solutions for New Mexico. So can we, can we create economy, an economy around restoration of oil and gas and, and how does that work? And, and again, go ahead and get wonky on us. Well, I think we have to, you know, take off our how can I make money from this hat, which is, I think, how a lot of Americans have been, well, you know, a lot of the Western world has been conditioned to solve problems. Like, how can I make money on this? And put on our World War II mobilization hats and say, how do we solve this problem together and uh, really, you know, benefit us all? And how do we, like, pull up our, our, our sleeves and really get after this in the way and with the resources and the people that are necessary to solve that? Like I mentioned before, you know, I had previously worked for the federal government and I have since, you know, started understanding the onshore context in addition to the offshore and recognizing that there are 10 million wells, that there are thousands of miles of pipelines. You know, there is this huge national crisis that requires, you know, a skilled workforce to safely address it. And it requires also an administrative body with the expertise and the democratic, you know, controls to ensure that, you know, we prioritize which of these wells is capped and like located first. Because I think the thing that I didn't mention at the top was, you know, there are, we ha- we know where some of these wells are, right? We have maps, but we don't know where all the wells are. And there are lots of maps. And so there is this problem and this potential risk that, these wells will be lost to our records because we're, you know, amidst a boom. We have been amidst a, a production boom for the last few years. And so we have a scramble right now in front of us to locate all of these wells, not just the ones that have been recently drilled, but those that have previously been lost, the legacy wells. And we also, as coincidence would have it, have about 118,000 people in this year alone with the skills to do that. They would have lost their jobs this year. And so I have written a bill, a federal bill, called the Abandoned Well Act of 2021, folks, if we can pass it, um, that would create a new executive level federal agency. It could be located within the Department of the Interior, Madam Holland. And this new administration would be the Abandoned Well Administration, and it would directly employ out-of-work oil and gas workers and 30 field offices across the United States to do this work. You know, we need people to sit and go through New Mexico office, excuse me, oil conservation division spreadsheets and reconcile those with Bureau of Land Management spreadsheets. We need people to walk fields with metal detectors, with, you know, piloting drones. We need across the United States, because this is not just in New Mexico, this is in Ohio fields, Pennsylvania fields, California, all over. We need people doing this work. And then, of course, we need skilled and trained oil and gas workers who are, you know, paid a very decent wage. They have full benefits. They are trained, you know, with up like and uh, naturally occurring radioactive material. Um, they are properly outfitted in all the, the appropriate gear that they need. We need all of these things to do this. And so 
the abandoned well administration. That is the the big tent idea that we need to rediscover what it means to have a government that serves its people and for the public purpose. Tell me again the name of this piece of legislation. It's the Abandoned Well Act of 2021. Okay, and one of the things that our mutual friend has sent me um, is the New Mexico Abandoned Well Administration pilot program. What's the difference between those two? Okay, well, the New Mexico pilot program was uh, a project that our mutual friend had asked me to do, um, which would be a a pilot version of this. It would be uh, one district in New Mexico. It would be federally funded, and it would be just an experiment to see how this could look uh, on a local level and whether it could scale up nationally. And the model that I used was, you know, after the Deepwater Horizon spill, there was the uh, Coastal Restoration Task Force, which was like this kind of quasi um, federal administrative body that had the you know authority to conduct studies, to issue um, grant money, to directly employ people. And so we decided that like let's try to do a pilot study administrative um, you know task force in New Mexico. So it's just like it's the smaller version of AWA. It's just the experimental version. You know, I, ideally, I would like to see, you know, the national one, but I think New Mexico is a good spot for a pilot because it has all of, it has a lot of federal land and it has all of the issues that you see nationally, but like, you know, concentrated in, you know, one state. And would the New Mexico pilot program, would that be a law that would have to go through Congress or would that be a state legislature decision? It would be a federal program and the state would have to agree. And again, cause it's a, it would be an you know, a pilot program. Um, it would be federally funded and it would be a federal experiment and uh, it would employ workers directly through the task force and the state would need to give permission for these people to, you know, go into state managed leases because there's not just, you know, BLM leases. There's also New Mexico state leases and tribal leases. Where where are our elected officials on um, the idea of the Abandoned Well Act of 2021 and the pilot program? Well, the staff I've spoken to so far seemed pretty, uh, really down with it. They were like, wow, this, you know, I think um, one thing I bring to the table is that bureaucrats' experience and understanding how, you know, government actually functions, like, you know, to the, the minutia in detail that is necessary. And the folks I've spoken to were really excited and um, really liked it. But as we know, it's not sufficient to have a good idea and to put it in front of the people who have the levers of power. You also need to begin building that grassroots support and popular support to put pressure on them. Because obviously those those same people, it, like, you know, have an immense amount of pressure pressure in terms of the establishment and the status quo. And so that's what true transition is about, is about trying to, you know, give voice to oil and gas workers in Finsline communities and help, you know, educate them about this opportunity that like, you know, would you want to be employed by the federal government and know that in five years you you will still have a job, you know, as compared to today where you don't even know if you'll have a job next week if you're working in the oil and gas industry. So that's where it sits, you know, it's, it's in front of some people. I think the idea is, you know, Obviously, you know, President Biden has spoken about the potential for employing oil and gas workers to do this work. This is something that is clearly on his mind. And I think right now the the battle is what form that will take, what shape will this take and who like how will this be designed and, you know, what, you know, how ambitious are we going to be? And 
I think that we need to go really big. We really need to, you know, the kind of cascading effects from unemployment, you know, are disastrous for communities. I know oil and gas jobs constitute only a small percentage of jobs nationally. But like, you know, tell that to someone be like, oh, your job is just a small percentage of total jobs. Well, that thanks. But, you know, I still need to feed my family. I still need to, you know, have purpose and dignity, you know, and the reality is like we can save people from, you know, unemployment and we can and we should because those skills are needed. You know, these oil and gas wells aren't going anywhere and they're just going to pose, you know, mounting threats as each day passes. You know, right now, somewhere across the United States, a, you know, a methane pocket is building underneath a community. A well that is just sitting in the middle of a marsh is just emitting record amount of methane and we don't know it. So it's like, why, you know, allow these workers to just sit and, you know, be underutilized in another industry where they are paid less or, you know, you know, succumb to a disease of despair or whatever. And, you know, like, completely, sorry to lack of a better term, crap on communities that have powered our nation. You know, like, sorry, we sucked you dry and we're going to just abandon you. You know, like, wells aren't the only things being abandoned. You know, like, instead, like, let's clean up those communities, employ these people, and work that is, you know, mutually beneficial to both them, their families, their communities, and the nation, and the world at large. You know, this is the choice. You know, we were talking about, you know, delayed infrastructure investments. You know, it's like the choice isn't between, you know, an oil and gas job and no job. The choice is between like jobs that work for you and me and the profit on someone's, you know, balance sheet. You know, we, there is no lack of work in the United States. There, every single human being in the United States could be employed, be it in childcare and healthcare and, you know, maintenance, doing the work that is necessary to make our country great and our people safe. But right now, we have mass unemployment because people choose for it to be the way to be that way. We're talking to Megan Milliken Biven. She's an energy policy policy researcher and founder of True Transition. Um, True Transition is an organization devoted to employing American oil and gas workers to address the United States' abandoned oil and gas well crisis. And we have, like you said, um, millions literally millions of unplugged, unplugged, abandoned wells across the country. And they're, again, as you said, leaking methane, greenhouse gases, um, uh, other pollutants and harming water. So the proposal to put folks to work doing this cleanup is, well, you know, one of the terms that we hear is just transition. Is that, that's part of this? Yes. Uh, So just transition is the idea that, you know, if we are transitioning, um, from you know, petroleum-based energy to a, a new form of energy that we shouldn't just leave the workers behind. We shouldn't abandon them. Um, we should be just in how we transition. And part of that is giving them a voice. What does that look like for them? What do they want? And you know, aside from you know a few news articles, you know these voices are pretty much not there uh, because. Oil and gas workers are less than 5% union. They don't have any kind of labor power or, you know, unified voice that represents them. Most of the oil and gas industry talking heads represent the owners and the shareholders, not the workers themselves. And, you know, I've had the good fortune to, to talk to a few oil and gas workers over the past year. 
And, you know, my feedback so far on the prospect of them working for the federal government to do this kind of work has been really positive. They would definitely, you know, work for the federal government. They don't see it as, you know, uh, a thing undermining their identity or, you know, who they are and what they do. They just want to put their skills to use and they want to feed their families and they want to live a good, dignified life. Um, and the just transition is making sure that as we, you know, invest in our country, finally, you know, laying a new electrical grid, investing in offshore wind, you know, solar farms, doing all the things that are necessary that we have you know, long neglected to do, that we just we don't forget the people that it could impact. And we we are intentional about that transition. So that's what it means. And we can do that. And the transition could be, you know, this work. Um, yeah, I could see, you know, if a, a city like Farmington, again, that's lost all these jobs over the years and has this giant mess to clean up, um, em, em, you know, re-employing folks and having a, an economic boom uh, based around restoration of the oil and gas fields. Yeah. And I mean, we say economic boom. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, you know, the last few years, oil and gas industry has had some some pretty tidy profits, but has that actually translated to the regular American worker? No, of course not. They've lived more precarious lives um, because everyone's shifting to 1099 contract work. You know, every they had moving from one place to another. But this is this would be a boom because you know AWA paychecks, abandoned well administration paychecks, federal employees puts real money in real people's pockets. They pay real rents, they pay real mortgages, they go buy real groceries, and they, you know, contribute to real churches. Like, this is real money. This isn't like Wall Street, like, only goes to a percentage of the population. This is putting money into people's pockets, just like the original New Deal, which was about putting people to work and giving them money. And that's, like, the thing. Like, whenever we talk about, oh, we need to bail out the companies, how many people have been rehired? Was there any, you know, conditional clauses to ensure that these oil and gas firms rehired their workers? No, there wasn't. And there's not going to be. And so when you have these, you know, industry proxies, these talking heads, you know, I always cite Louisiana's ghouls, but they are a particular brand of ghoul. You know, they just they parrot all the talking points and say, oh, what about Louisiana jobs? Well, ignoring completely that those jobs have already gone and it's the oil and gas industry that has been firing them. And so, yeah, that would be an economic boom in the region. And also it allows the state to diversify because you as I said before, these industries crowd out other industries. They, the oil and gas industry crowds out any other potential type of investment. And so not only do the, the, the abandoned well administration plug and cap and monitor these wells in perpetuity, but it would, uh, excuse me, conduct local investigations of what could be put in their place. Like, could we have a solar farm here? Could we do wildlife habit um rehabilitation and, and, you know, extend the national park boundaries. You know, what are the opportunities here that we could safely include right here? And I think it's not just about like cleaning up the area, lowering our methane emissions, um, directly employing people, but also expanding the horizon of what is possible from coast to coast. Is there a place online where folks can look at the Abandoned Well Act of 2021 um, and the New Mexico Abandoned Well administration pilot program? Uh, well, I do not have the latter up, but because uh, that was intended as a memo for an elected official. Um, but the uh, the Abandoned Well Act can be found at truetransition.org. And there's a little button that says click here. Sorry, guys. It is a placeholder website. Um, so it's not as pretty as it could be, but it will be pretty soon. 
It will be. It'll be beautiful. We've been talking with Megan Milliken-Biven, the uh, researcher and founder of True Transition, um, which is, I believe, www.truetransition.org, right? Yes. And um, yeah, is there anything else you want to want to add before we, we jump off? What a long, enjoyable conversation. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Um, no, I just think that like, like I scolded you at the beginning of the conversation, you know, don't accept the, the usual, the usual premises, you know, don't accept the claim that like the status quo is somehow better. You know, I think we have a tendency to fear the unknown. It's a risk, but like that is, there is so much potential and it's, such a better world than what we are currently living in. And right now, all these unemployed oil and gas workers, all these unemployed at-home workers, like I said, we need a lot of people doing a lot of things. You know, this is a political, it's a grim, glib political choice, and we don't have to make it anymore. We can put people back to work, and we can give work that actually matters to our communities. So, yeah, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to share this with y'all, and it was really lovely speaking with you, Jim. Yeah, thank you, Megan. I really appreciate it. And um, thanks for coming on. Of course. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell in Taos, New Mexico. Edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.taoslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.